Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. For the children to sing some of their, their songs for us for Christmas. And so we look forward to that. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31, Hebrews 11. You know, it's amazing how many scandals have rocked American culture in the past 20 or 30 years. How many of you remember the Jimmy Swaggart scandal? Back in 1987, he was followed by a private investigator to a hotel room for a secret rendezvous with a prostitute. And then it was found out and he went on Nightline uh, crying those tears and confessed his sin. How many of you remember Elliot Spitzer, the governor of New York, who had to resign in embarrassment for getting caught up in all of these prostitution rings in Manhattan in New York City? Or who could forget Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam? All of her prostitution rings to the elite and famous of Los Angeles. Prostitution. It's oftentimes called the oldest profession. This past week, I went online to do some research on prostitution, and I'm not at liberty to share a lot of that this morning. It was very depressing. But I will tell you this. One of the shocking things I discovered was that two-thirds of all prostitutes begin working as a prostitute at the age of 16 years or younger. Two-thirds of them. It's a life of loneliness. It's a life of degradation. It's a life of emptiness. It's a life of violence. It's a life of shame. And you may be saying, wow, Sean, this is an interesting way to start a sermon. Talking about prostitutes. Where are we going this morning? Do I need to ask the kids to leave? Why, Why are you talking about prostitutes? Let me just ask you a very important question this morning. The question we're going to be looking at. And it's simply this. Can God save the worst kind of sinners? Can God save the worst kind of sinners? Can God save the owner of the pornography company? Can God save the vicious dictator of that third world country? Can God save the rapist or the child molester? Can God save a prostitute? I know it's pretty gritty this morning what we're talking about, but the Bible does teach that God can save the worst kind of sinners. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is slamming the Pharisees. And in Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus was often accused of being a friend of sinners. Jesus offered hope to sinners. Jesus offered redemption to sinners. What about Paul? What did Paul say about himself? You know what Paul called himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Verses 13 through 16, this is what Paul says. Though formerly, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That word means I'm the worst, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let me just stop right here this morning, and let's just listen to the words of Scripture. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Then you need to be thanking the Lord Jesus that Christ came to save you. He came into the world to save sinners. And this morning, we're going to see the faith of a working girl, the faith of a prostitute, the redemption of Rahab. So let's look at Hebrews eleven twenty nine through 31, and then we're going to go back to Joshua and see how the story unfolds. Hebrews eleven twenty nine, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. If you remember from last week, we looked at the Passover, the slaughtering of the lamb at twilight. The, the putting of the blood on the door frames of the house, and then the destroyer came through, and, and, and all the firstborn in Egypt were slaughtered except for the children of Israel. There was a provision. There was a substitutionary atonement. We found that Christ himself is the ultimate Passover lamb that saves us from the wrath of God. And then at midnight, when horror spread through the town... When that cry of anguish spread through, when everybody that were the Egyptians woke up and realized that their firstborn was dead, Pharaoh summons Aaron and Moses and says, get out, leave. And so the Israelites get up and they leave and they're faced with a decision. You see, they're on the banks of the Red Sea, about ready to cross. Pharaoh, the ruthless dictator, the ruthless king, is pursuing them. He's pursuing them hotly, and they're almost paralyzed with fear. The nation of Israel doesn't know what they're supposed to do. Do we go forward? Do we go back to Egypt? We're in crisis mode, so much so that God has to give a warning, has to give a command to Moses to say, tell the people to move forward. We find this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. What you see here in verse 29 of Hebrews 11 is that the people of Israel were willing to move forward at the Lord's command. They were willing to go forward. No questions asked, immediate obedience. They didn't have any confusion. It was as if they were like Abraham. When God said, go, the nation of Israel left. This is the exodus. This is the exiting of Egypt. This is the the Passover, the crossing through the Red Sea on dry land. Now we know the rest of the story. It says that the, the waters came in and drowned the Egyptians. So that nation crossed. Verse 29. Verse 30, we get to Jericho. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, what happens between the Red Sea and Jericho? How many years? Forty years. 
And it's no accident that the writer of Hebrews says nothing about that 40 years because that was the disobedient generation that wandered for 40 years. They didn't get to go into the promised land. They died before they went into the promised land. Moses had died, and now Joshua is the leader. Joshua is the leader. They're on the east side of the Jordan River, and there's a walled city called Jericho that they need to go in and take over. And so Joshua, being the great military commander that he is, decides to send two spies in to spy out the land. So let's see how the story unfolds back in Joshua, because we're going to spend most of our time this morning in the book of Joshua. So keep your finger in Hebrews 11 like we do every week. Turn back to Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to see the story of Rahab, the prostitute, and how she happens to meet these two spies. Joshua chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 14 verses here, and we're going to see the faith of Rahab, the redemption of Rahab, the prostitute. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I do not know where they're from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard... How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Jericho is a key city. It needs to be taken. So Joshua sends these two spies in. Not the greatest in espionage. They get discovered right off the bat. The king of Jericho says, we saw the spies going in. And they thought to themselves, well, maybe if we went to um, Rahab's house, we may may be a little inconspicuous. Now, Now, Rahab's house was not a brothel per se. It was more like a tavern. It was more like an inn, a way station, a place where people would come and travel and people would stay. And so you have to ask yourself a question, of all places to end up, why did these guys end up in the house of a prostitute? 
Now, we know that these were godly Israelite men that weren't looking for anything immoral. They just happened to show up there. Now, was this a coincidence that they show up at Rahab's house? Is it a string of weird luck? What's going on here? The text does not tell us, but we have to just imagine that God is working out his sovereign purposes to bring salvation to this prostitute. It's not an accident. God is bringing about events to bring about her salvation. Rahab, the prostitute. Now, she's an interesting character, right? She lies. Not once, but three times. Now, I don't have time to go into all the ethical implications of what this issue is of her lying to protect these men on the house. That's for another day and another time. But I will just tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible is her lying ever commended, and nowhere is her lying ever condemned. Now, we know from the Scriptures that lying is wrong. The Ten Commandments tell us that lying is wrong. Jesus tells us that lying is wrong. She lies. She's known for her faith. What's going on here? How do we process the lie of Rahab? All I can tell you is this. She is acting as a pagan Gentile. She's doing what every other pagan Gentile in Jericho is doing. She's a product of her culture. She's a product of her sin nature. She is in a culture of idolatry idolatry with a sinful heart. She is a clueless pagan sinner acting out of her own nature the same way that many people that you come across every day act. You come across people that are clueless. You come across people that don't act Christian. You come across (gasps) sinners, don't you? Now, we're not excusing Rahab's sin. We're just saying that she is a sinner acting like sinners do. Now, did she have any clue as to who God was? Not much. Was she there at the base of Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments? No. Was she there that night when the Passover lambs were sacrificed? No. Was she there at the crossing of the Red Sea? No. As far as as anything related to the law of God, she had no clue. She was a Gentile pagan outsider. So she was only acting on the basis of her sinful culture. But what's interesting is this. She's the only female listed in this hall of faith. Now remember, Sarah's listed, but it's not Sarah's faith that's commended. It's Abraham's faith. She's the only woman. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Why is a pagan, lying, Gentile prostitute in the hall of faith? It makes you ask the question, why is she here? What about her faith is so amazing? What's so remarkable about her faith? I mean, why would she risk her life? She was risking her life in in hiding these spies. Why would she risk her life? Why would she do this? What is so remarkable about the faith of Rahab? Well, from this text in Joshua, we see three things. Three distinct features of the faith of Rahab. And these are amazing things considering that she's a Gentile pagan prostitute. Let's look at these unfold. First of all, we see these in verses 8 through 10. The first thing that we see here is that God uses testimonies to awaken her faith. God uses the testimonies of others to awaken her faith. Notice what she says in verse, in verse 8. I know that the Lord, or verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10, for we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea. She heard stories of the Red Sea. She heard stories of these kings that were defeated. She had heard testimonies about God's power. Now, where did she hear these testimonies? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. 
Her house is a inn. Her house is a way station. Her house is a tavern. Men are coming in here telling her stories. And the ironic thing is that the men who were using her for tricks were probably telling her about the God of Israel. Amazing. And God begins to use these stories of his power to awaken her faith. How does she respond? How does she respond when she hears these testimonies? Look at verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. This is a woman under strong conviction. This is a woman being gripped by the powerful hand of God. She's under strong conviction that the God of Israel is amazing. The God of Israel is powerful. The God of Israel is sovereign. And that's what begins to happen when people begin to hear testimonies about the power of God. Do you realize when you begin to open your mouth and share about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, God will use that to awaken faith in lost people. So never underestimate the power of a testimony. When you take the gospel with your testimony, now the gospel is more important than your testimony, the gospel is what saves, but when you begin to tell people about what God has done in his power, God oftentimes uses that to awaken faith in lost people. God begins to overcome the worst kind of resistance in the most wicked of sinners. There's another woman in the Bible I can think of that this happened to. Do you remember Lydia in Acts? Lydia was a dealer of purple fabric, from the city of Thyatira, she's down by a riverbank listening to Paul and Philippi preaching. And in Acts chapter 16, we find these words, Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who opened whose heart? The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Lydia didn't open up her heart. The Lord opened up her heart. And that's exactly what's going on here with Rahab. Rahab's heart is being opened by a sovereign God. And you have to ask the question, why Rahab? Why her? Of all the people in Jericho that God could have chosen to save, why a prostitute? God is orchestrating his sovereign grace in bringing redemption to the worst kind of sinner. He's drawing this sinner in sovereign grace to himself. So never underestimate the power of your testimony. Never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. When you begin to open your mouth and share the gospel, the Holy Spirit does some amazing things. He will use your words to melt hearts with the gospel. So the first thing we see is that God begins to use these testimonies to awaken faith in her, to soften her heart, to bring her to a point of conviction. But secondly... The second thing we see about Rahab's faith is that she makes a solid confession of trust in the only true God. This is amazing. Notice what she says in verse 11. This is a profound confession of faith from the mouth of a Gentile pagan. Probably the greatest expression of faith from the mouth of a Gentile pagan in all the pages of Scripture. Notice what she says in verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Lord is God. She uses the word Lord in all caps there, right? The Hebrew personal covenant name Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, Israel, and Jacob. It's not just this generic God. You do not see any squishy, fuzzy, politically correct, mamby-pamby confession from Rahab. What does she say? God is God. 
He's the God of heaven above. He's the God of earth below. There is no other God. He is sovereign over the heavens. He's sovereign over the earth. Your God is the only God. She is bold. And I'm afraid in our culture, people are afraid to be this bold. Think about it. How many times do we get uncomfortable by saying Jesus is the only way of salvation? How many times do we get uncomfortable by saying there's only one path to God, not many? Would that we as Christians would have the boldness of Rahab. This is her salvation experience. This is her transformation, if you will. She comes through sovereign grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this regenerating work of God. Her eyes are open, and she makes the confession, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, he is the only God. He is the sovereign God. He's the only God. And when she's saying that, she's saying the gods of the Canaanites, Baal, Asherah, all these pagan gods, they are not gods at all. So she's abandoning her idolatry. She's forsaking her idolatry. And she turns and she says, this God is the only God. She says something she doesn't even know something that was given to the Israelites many years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 4, many years earlier. Deuteronomy 4.39 Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. She confesses this without even knowing it. She hadn't read Deuteronomy. God had sovereignly awakened her to confess faith in the only true God. There's only one God. There is no other. He's worthy of worship and praise. And I hope you notice something back in verse 9. What does she say? I know that the Lord has given you the land. There's no doubt in her mind who's in control. She already knows God's going to get it. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God gets what he wants. God is orchestrating events to bring about the destruction of Jericho. She has a better understanding of God's sovereignty than most Christians. She has a better understanding of the exclusivity of Christ than most Christians. She does not compromise when it comes to the absolute sovereignty of God over heaven above, over earth beneath, that there is one true living God. She makes this profound profession of faith. So not only does God use testimonies to awaken her faith, number two, not only does she make this bold, profound confession that the Lord, he is the only God, but thirdly, She knows she deserves wrath and not mercy. She knows that she's going to die, and she deserves to die. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now then, please swear to me that the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. She knows that they're going to die. She knows that God has given them the land. She knows that they are toast. And the amazing thing about Rahab is she never once blames God for his destruction of Jericho. She doesn't say, well, God, you don't des- we don't deserve to be destroyed. We're good people. We're good. We're worthy of your love, God. No, she knows that they are rebellious, wicked, pagan idolaters, and they deserve to be wiped off the planet. Never once does she get in God's face and say, God, you are obligated to save me. She says, I know we're going to die. Please, please save us. She, all she does is cast herself at the mercy of God. You see, that's what, that's what it really means to understand salvation. 
When you begin to understand that none of us deserve anything from God and that we simply cast ourselves at God's mercy alone, then you understand that salvation is God's gift to sinners who are unworthy of that salvation. And all you can do is you can never say, God, you're obligated to save me. The minute you say that, it ceases to be grace. And you can't say that God didn't give them a chance to repent. We'll get this in just a few minutes. How many times do they walk around Jericho? Seven times. You'd think maybe on day two, somebody would run out and say, okay, we get the picture. I'm going to bow to this God. Maybe on day three, another Jericho pagan bows to this God. Not one. Not one bows to God. Back in Hebrews 11.31, remember it says that the the disobedient died. Those who were disobedient. In the original language, that word disobedient means the unbelieving. Those who were not convinced. It means that they were a stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, unbelieving people. And so God had given them ample opportunity to repent. God said, here's seven days to do it. Not one takes the warning and repents, except for this prostitute, Rahab. Now let's see the continuation of the story. Let's pick up in verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street... His blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we will be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They make an arrangement, right? There's an oath between Rahab and the spy. She says, save us. And they say, okay, we'll, we'll save you. We will save you, but just don't tell anybody about what what our business is. And then there's got to be a visible sign. When we come back and ransack Jericho, we need to be able to see the visible sign that your house is protected. And so what's the visible sign? The scarlet cord hanging out the window. And there's been many speculations all the way through the history of the church of what this scarlet thread, this scarlet cord was. Some people believe it was the red light district. Therefore, she had the red cord because she was a prostitute, the red light district. There's been some archaeological evidence to to, to indicate that. Some people say, well, this is the blood of Christ, which I'm not against because obviously we we see the the blood of Christ being red, but but there's no real explicit definition or explanation in the Bible as to far as what this scarlet cord is. And so we kind of have to guess. But here's what I think it is. It relates to Passover that we looked at last week. Remember Passover. Passover, there had to be the visible sign of blood on the doorpost. Remember, when God went through the land, he had to be able to see the blood, and then he would pass over. Same thing with Rahab. God had to see the scarlet cord out the window, and then he would pass over. And in both cases, remember in the Passover and in Rahab's situation, both situations, they were told, under no circumstances, go outside the house. Stay in the house. Stay in the house, and you will be saved so she puts the red cord out the window as she's told to do 
representing the fact that she's not going to get killed along with the rest of the people of Jericho? And so is this the whole story of Rahab? Is this the end? The scarlet cord out the window. Back in our Hebrews passage, it has the order reversed. In chapter 11, verse 30, it talks about the walls of Jericho falling down. Chapter 31, it talks about Rahab. So really in chronological order, verses 30 and 31 are, are out of order. But let's see how this unfolds. Because we know the story of Jericho. Turn over to Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua 5, I believe Jesus Christ himself here, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself, shows up to Joshua and commands them to go take Jericho. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and beheld a man was standing before him and his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now why do I think this is Jesus? Just a side note. Joshua worships and Jesus doesn't say, Don't worship me. Angels always said, Don't worship me, worship Jesus. The man accepted the worship of Joshua. Now we know from chapter 6 that... The walls come down. Weird military strategy, right? For six days, march around the city once. And all you're going to carry is the Ark of the Covenant and blow some trumpets. Hmm. That sounds real interesting, God. Doesn't make much sense. No weapons. Expose ourselves to this walled, fortified city. Walk around, and all we've got is the Ark of the Covenant, and we're blowing some trumpets weird and on the seventh day walk around seven times and cry out real loud and then the walls are going to fall down those of you that are in the military you would probably laugh at joshua if he told you this right we're taking what no slingshots no arrows no swords the ark of the covenant and trumpets what does the ark of the covenant represent the very presence of god what does the trumpet represent worship so here's the point When you begin to worship, God shows up. The Lord inhabits the praise of his people. You just go out there and worship, Israelites, and when you worship, God will fight the battle. And it takes authentic faith to to, to act upon weird instructions. Not one of them. We don't have one of the Israelites saying in Holy Scripture, Joshua, you're a nut. Not once. They do it. They walk around the city seven times on the seventh day. They blow the trumpets and the walls fall down and every single person in Jericho is killed except for what? One family who has a scarlet cord outside their window. How do we see this unfold? Go down to chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman 
and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Rahab is saved. Her family is saved. But they are still pagan outsiders, right? What, is, what does it say here? They were put where? Outside the camp. They're still pagan outsiders. She's a prostitute. We'll, we, we'll, they'll be saved, but, but they're outside the camp. They're not part of God's people yet. Look at verse 24 and 25. There's a shift that happens. Verse 24, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Really, in the original Hebrew, she lived within Israel. She was incorporated into the covenant people of God. She became part of the nation. She became part of the people. She became a true Israelite. Is that the end of the story? Cool story. Scarlet cord, James Bond spies that are fumbling around, prostitutes. Is that the end of the story? Not at all. What happens to Rahab? Rahab marries a man named Solomon. Solomon and Rahab have a son named Boaz. Have you heard of him? Boaz married Ruth, another Gentile pagan outsider. And Ruth and Boaz, we studied this a few years ago, they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, King David, Israel's greatest king. So Rahab is King David's great-great-grandmother. Amazing. The lineage of David from a prostitute. Is that the end of the story of Rahab? Is there more? Have you ever read those weird genealogies in your Bible? Come across all those weird names, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and you just kind of skip over it because you can't understand all the names? Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, there are five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, who dressed like a prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess, a Gentile. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Who's fifth on the list in the genealogy of Jesus? Rahab. Rahab. It's amazing to me that in the lineage of Jesus, you have Rahab, the prostitute. You see, her redemption becomes greater than what she'd ever known. You see, Rahab thought she was just being saved from death with the scarlet cord. She did not realize that thousands of years later, through her lineage, would give birth to the Savior who would die and his scarlet blood would be poured out for the sins of many and that ultimate redemption would come through Jesus Christ. She was saved far greater than she ever knew. And almost every time Rahab's name is mentioned in the Bible, you have that ominous label. Rahab the prostitute just like Matthew the tax collector. Now, is this the Bible's way of making fun of Rahab? Not hardly. It's the Bible's way of saying God loves to save sinners. It's a reminder that she was a prostitute, but God saved her 
by grace. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? Save sinners. And let me just give you a newsflash this morning. We are all Rahab. You may be saying to yourself, well, I'm not a prostitute. Praise the Lord, you're not. But we've all been unfaithful to our Lord. We've all disobeyed our King. We've all rebelled against our true bridegroom. We've all been unworthy of Christ's sacrificial love. We are all prostitutes in the fact that none of us deserves God's love, and we have sinned time and time again, and praise the Lord that Jesus Christ came and he saved a prostitute like Rahab. He can save people like us. We are Rahab. About a month ago, I spent a few days with our friend Art Azurdia. Many of you remember when Art came and preached at our church. I think he's one of the greatest preachers of our day, and um, I asked him, do you realize that on YouTube they have these sermon jams of you, Art? It's like, yes, I'm aware of those. A guy in Colorado Springs puts together these sermon jams. They take parts of sermons. They do this with John Piper and John MacArthur and, and other people. And, and so there's been a sermon jam that has been put together of Art's sermon on Rahab. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow our friend Art Azurdia to close out our message because I think he does a lot better job than me. So let's watch the unfolding of the redemption of Rahab. God loves to save the most despicable kind of people. And that's certainly true in my case. In getting me, God wasn't getting something good. In getting me, God wasn't getting anything special. In getting me, God wasn't getting anything that would add to him or benefit him in any way, shape, or form. Have you forgotten by chance the sewer out of which God rescued you? Which means, dear friends, that our hope, our joy, is grounded in this, that our God is absolutely relentless in his passionate pursuit to save sinners, not good people. God doesn't save good people. Good people don't need to be saved. God saves bad people. Are you a bad person today? Then I'm exceedingly glad that you are here, because that's what this congregation is, a congregation of bad people. Why do you come to this place? So that you can hear of the God who saves bad people, who loves bad people, who rescues and delivers and extends mercy to bad people. Why bad people? Because doing so reveals the glory of His grace and the expansive boundaries of His love. Because doing so exposes the true potency of His saving accomplishments in His Son, Jesus Christ. God loves to save bad people. We raise our fist in God's face and we say, Why do you save some and not others? And it makes us mad. In our arrogance, it makes us mad. As the pot, we think we have rights to the potter. 
Why do you save some and not others? And you understand, of course, the predisposition that's behind all of that? The assumption that we're all innocent. But when you understand, as Rahab does, that we are all guilty, then suddenly the amazing thing is not that God saves some and not others. The amazing thing is that God saves any. When you understand that we're all guilty, suddenly saving any becomes the most amazing display of the grace of God. This is the Christian God. The God who saves them. The God who has revealed himself to you most fully in Jesus Christ. The gracious God. The generous God. The warm-hearted God. The opened-armed God. The God who is for sinners. Are you a sinner? A sinner like Rahab, dominated by sin because of your enslavement to sin, the God of the Bible is full of power and full of love and eager to save. And he does so, dear friends, by the one who has now come to us through the redeemed womanhood of Rahab, God's own son, Jesus Christ. You are not It makes no difference, dear friends, how scandalous your sin may be, even if it's as ugly as that of Rahab's. Like Rahab, ask God to save you from death. And he will in ways far greater than you could ever begin to imagine. Ask God, like Rahab, to save you from death. And because of the one who has come to us through the lineage of Rahab, because of Jesus Christ, God will give you life. Father, we come before you this morning. with an understanding that